beaming from Pacific Junction Hotel to Earth. Girth. Used to be, to open a door, you rolled aside a stone. Centuries later, you lifted a latch. Then you fitted a key, turned a knob. Now, you can open a door with a phone, or a fingerprint, or a voice command. Times change. The ways of entry change. But you still have to open the door. On this October 31st, Samheim, All Saints' Eve, All Hallows' Eve, Halloween, the fall climax, when the division between this world and the other frails, they open the door. For the past few years, Undertown Incorporated has been busy harvesting information. 80 million accounts from Anthem and 70 million from Target. 56 million from Home Depot, 76 million from J.P. Morgan Chase. Ashley Madison, AOL, British Airways, Living Social, Adobe, UPS, and eBay, and Blizzard, and Domino's, and more. So many more. Amassing information for a cyber war. Every time news broke about a data hack, people panicked, worrying over their credit cards and bank accounts especially. But when nothing happened, when no mysterious charges appeared, when no one applied for a credit card or loan in their name, they forgot. They only worried about money, as though money were the only thing worth stealing. But Undertown wanted usernames and passcodes, the more subtle but severely damaging information. Because that is the way in, the ciphered connection between your fingertips and keyboard. Jimmy's open the lock between the physical and digital. This is what everyone should be worried about. Not their accounts, but their identity. Snowden leaks the NSA files. Hackers leak the Sony emails. Facebook and Google track your browsing habits, your buying habits, your location, your race, gender, religion, age, orientation, and custom fit their ads accordingly. DNA has been replaced by streams of data, and it has become dangerously clear how your digital footprint can come back to haunt you. With so much of your life online, just like that, you can be erased, possessed. For now, Portland is the target. Portland is the focus group. Portland is the door. Yo, Benjamin Percy reading from the dark net. Hey, hey, thanks for having me on. Uh, welcome to my summer lair. I'm your host, Sam Yunin. Thanks for taking some time to read the uh, the passage. That was uh, You had some rhythm there. I guess you're kind of getting used to it. That's as you right, can. some dark music. Yeah. I'll try and find a nice like, little like bed or something to put underneath it and like make it all like evil sounding and stuff just in time for Halloween. Well, you know, you didn't realize that Goodnight Moon was a horror novel until I read it. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you feel bad for my kids? Yeah. Can you imagine me reading you a bedtime story? <laughs> so they got some night terrors now, is what you're saying? <laughs> the scariest line in all of literature? Mm-hmm. Good night, nobody. Yeah, I know. It's just a blank page. Yeah. Everyone's gone. <laughs> That's it. It's like that Twilight Zone episode, Where Is Everybody? <laughs> That's it. Goodbye. Good night, nobody. I want to talk about uh, the dark net. There's on page 147, uh, you mentioned the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Yeah. I visited the Jet Propulsion Laboratory earlier this, uh, earlier this year in July. And 
what I found interesting was you mentioned Parsons, who was, of course, friends with uh, Aleister Crowley, the uh, famous occultist, and they were both friends with uh, L. Ron L. Hubbard. L. Ron Hubbard, yeah. But what, what I found interesting was, like, this was a mixture of, like, science, like, hardcore science. Like, Parsons actually developed rocket fuel and real things that the Jet Propulsion Laboratory is still kind of built on today. And at the same time, him and Crowley and L. Ron Hubbard were experimenting uh, with occult stuff and kind of tapping into, like, the spiritual realm. So the book, to me, kind of reflects the same kind of two themes as the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, where, like, you have cyberspace, which is kind of a real place, but it's not a real place. And things do happen and do have impact. And you have people like your main, one of your main characters, Leela, who is kind of like a Luddite. She doesn't quite have the faith in cyberspace. And then you also have the flip side of that is you have uh, this kind of like spiritual realm where you have light and dark and demons. And these are the kind of things that you were kind of like, good night, nobody, the thing you were just kind of talking about. And so you have kind of an intersection between this science and this kind of like occulty thing yeah, that's yeah. happening. How did I do? Is it that's, a, that's a smart way of putting it. I like that. You know, early on, a few things happened to me that that resulted in this intersection of, of cybercrime and horror. And one was that in a single fateful week, my sister's email got hacked, my friend's Facebook feed got hacked, my inbox and, uh, and social media windows filled up with spam and phishing stuff. My neighbor, he filed for his taxes and discovered that somebody else had already done so and collected the refund. My credit card information was stolen and used by somebody in Spain. And then my dad clicked on the wrong attachment and his computer was overcome by this ransomware and it said if he didn't pay a certain amount of money in bitcoins in 24 hours everything would be erased and it just made me recognize like how naked we are how vulnerable we are how easy it is to be as i read from that section to be erased to be stalked to be pirated to be possessed and you know i saw some intersections between you know Cybercrime stories, cyberpunk stories like William Gibson's Neuromancer and also old stories of demonic possession and also fairy tales. So many fairy tales back in the day, they, were, they resulted from people not understanding what was going on and feeling disturbed and horrified by the shadows in the forest or a plague that might descend on a village. Uh, a child dies, throat ripped out in a meadow. Story might emerge about a wolf with cunning with evil intelligence. Uh, somebody's grave seems to be disturbed, and the myth of vampirism arises from it. Right now, there's so much we don't understand, right? Right now, as I talk to you, signals are streaming through our bodies. We have iPhones in our pockets that we don't understand, and yet treat like a prosthetic cerebrum and rely completely on. There's so much we don't understand. There's so much that, that makes us anxious, like the way that every time your computer screen glitches, Every time your phone starts to chug a little more slowly, like you wonder, has it already begun? <laughs> yeah. That's Is there it. a worm tunneling its way through this thing right now? Is somebody creating an online avatar in my name? And so what I want to do is write, like, I want to channel those anxieties, those real-world anxieties, but, like, crank up the volume on it. And essentially what I have here is a new kind of black forest of Germany, uh, a digital wilderness that we're surrounded by. And don't comprehend. And so this story is trying to make sense of that all. Is it a cautionary tale similar to like what you're saying with the fairy tales? Like be careful through the forest. Yeah, but I don't want to denigrate it in that way either. 
it's not just like technology is evil, okay? Yeah. You know, <laughs> technology is ultimately the thing that saves everybody in the story, too. But I definitely became, as a result of the research process, more paranoid than ever. <laughs> yeah. So you have the same night terrors as your children do now. I, I don't think they, they know the half of it. I mean, my son begs for a phone every day. He's 11 years old. He thinks he's the most uncool kid at school because he doesn't have a, you know, a Samsung or an iPhone. And this era of distractibility that we live in where it's bad enough for the 30-year-olds, the 40-year-olds, the 50-year-olds among us who've been using smartphones for a few years. Like, what if you're raised with those things? Like, what does that do to your hard wiring? Yeah. I'm worried about that. And, and of course, when you're a preteen, when you're a teenager, you don't care. You just want to be connected to your pals, but... I really think that it's like seriously screwing us up psychologically and, and creating like an inability for people to focus, to do any deep work. So, you know, that's the sort of horror story that, that I know about that he, that he, you know, I'm, I'm basically saying to him, like a member of the audience in a horror film, don't go in there. Yeah. But he's, he keeps moving towards the closet with his hand out. Yeah. He's like, what's the worst that can happen? <laughs> Michael Myers is in there, man. Yeah. But this is kind of similar to what you're talking about. It's like, it's almost like smoking in a sense. People do, like, they think smoking is cool or whatever. And you can smoke a cigarette or two and quote unquote, nothing happens. It's accumulation. Right. Eventually. That kind of finally catches up to you. The digital plaque in your veins. Yeah. Um, maybe Apple should call you up for the next like tagline. <laughs> the, the, the digital plaque in your veins. We will ruin your brain. There you go. Yeah, I think uh, Tim Cook should call you up for the next like presentation. <laughs> I'll put on a black turtleneck, walk out on the stage. Yeah, just deliver your one line and then walk off. <laughs> good night, nobody. Crush it, <laughs> crush it beneath my heel. <laughs> yeah, that's it. And just say, yeah, good night, nobody. OSX 10. Yeah, perfect. That would, like, it'll sell right like hotcakes <laughs> now. In addition to, like, uh, selling and coming up with Apple taglines, I want to ask about you personally, something that the characters mention in the book. Are you on the spectrum? I have family members who are on the spectrum, so to speak. You know, my mom thinks that she sees auras. My mom claims to see ghosts and other apparitions i have other members of my family as well who claim to have and and they're doubtful of this even as they say it but psychic capabilities and so i've always been fascinated by this i i have zero you know zero connection to the spiritual world at all i would i desperately want to see a ghost i put myself in haunted situations all the time how's that work I was, out i was down in you know the the catacombs of paris all alone surrounded by thousands of of skeletons. That'll do I'm it. Like, all right, come on, ghosts. Come on, ghosts. <laughs> it was like in Predator when the yeah. dude's, you know, yeah. on that bridge and he's yeah. cutting himself with a knife and he's like, <laughs> and I hear this sort of scratching, scratching sound up ahead. Somebody steps into view, a shadowy figure, and I hear boozy, 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 boo, <laughs> which I think is what the hell are you doing in French? Yes. There's the security guard. <laughs> no ghosts. No, no ghosts. ghosts. Even thousands of skeletons, no ghosts. How many basements? I'm dead are, inside, obviously. Yeah. How many basements are you, you have to go down before you get to see a ghost? Come on, like, ghosts. Give me a break. What is it you're hoping to see? Are you hoping to see like actual proof that this other side yeah. exists? Wouldn't and, that be great if we weren't just worm food? Yeah, I guess so. 
But isn't there? There has to be a better way to prove it. Like, I mean, you had one of the characters in the the book, for example. He died, and then he had the uh, the classic. He died, and then came back. Right. Wouldn't that count? Those stories don't count to you. That hasn't happened to me yet. All right. I've been in a few skiing accidents and car accidents, but uh, you know, I wasn't floating above my body. You didn't and, go down the tunnel and, and speaking to otherworldly figures. All right. But you know, we'll see what tonight brings. Yeah, it's still early. Toronto does have a couple of haunted areas and stuff like that. I'll tell you where they are after we wrap up, and then you the can Toronto kinda, catacombs. Yeah, <laughs> you can kind of see <laughs> if uh, if you can find like a haunted like person or a ghost or something like that. My 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 dream would be to guest host an episode of Ghost Hunters. Oh, that would be pretty cool. There's only one line in Ghost Hunters, and that is, "Did you hear that?" <laughs> so, so, so you're well underway. I already got the script down. Yeah. You'd be more fascinated, I guess, than scared if you did see a ghost, right? Like, you'd approach it as a scientific inquiry almost. Yeah, I'd be like, possess me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, the passage you just read about Scratch doors. Scratch my back. <laughs> Give me boils. <laughs> what do you got? You're basically signing up for the all-inclusive package. <laughs> <laughs> There's this one author I know, Luis Guerrilla. He's, he's become a buddy of mine over the years, and he said the worst decision he ever made was he was at this house in Mexico City, and there was a thumping at the door, a boom, 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 and it was known to be haunted, and he said, come in, and the door creaked open, and he said he then had the worst night's sleep in his life, <laughs> and woke up covered in pustules and with scratch marks and had, you know, visions of creatures, phantas, you know, phantasms floating all around him. And I was like, I want to go. What's the address? <laughs> he picked up a hitchhiker. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned that, like, you had all these incidences with, like, your family members and computers getting hacked and things like that. But you also did quite a bit of research as well to, like, kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. to see what the, what the know, dark net I, I was. I started off in a really technophobic state of mind and I wanted to write about. Cybercrime, I wanted to write about the deep web and the dark net, but I knew I could not possibly authenticate it. So I scammed my way into this by pitching some articles, and one of them was for GQ, and I uh, got hooked up with all this gear. So I had like five Fitbits and three Apple Watches. I had a Google Glass. I had this SoundHawk technology that allowed me to hear across a room, eavesdrop. I went to the Google campus. I visited with people at Verizon. I got hooked up with some... I guess you could call them gray hats in the hacking community. And all of this, you know, hopefully made the story credible so that somebody in the tech world can read it and be like, aside from the demon stuff, this guy knows what he's talking about. <laughs> and maybe even because he doesn't know what he's talking about with the demon stuff. <laughs> when you're writing Green Arrow, switching gears a little bit, like, so you did a lot of research for this book. Is your research fueling Green Arrow as well, or the research you're doing for Green Arrow fueling the book as well, or like where does it all kind of like? Uh, you know, I develop. You develop obsessions. You develop focal queries in research, and it bleeds over into other stuff. So, you know, I did all this info, this this research into technology and vulnerable data, and that ended up becoming the focus of the James Bond arc that I did. I've done all this research on. <clears throat> occultist arcana there's a l little bit of that in green arrow yeah. so yeah in different ways like these the tentacles of these things end up in different arenas but hopefully in each occasion it's you know seen through a, a fresh lens that i'm not really recycling i'm trying to find like different ways to use 
this information that I've dug up. I find that in uh, certain writers like Dean Koontz, for example, they'll put like little Easter eggs of like philosophy in the novel of what they believe or something like yeah, that. Yeah. And there was one part in on page seven. I'm just going to read it now. That seemed like it was like a philosophy that you had. I might, I might know what you're going to read. So the character is a journalist. She's, so she's a writer and a journalist. She says, this is, like I said, on page seven, this is what it means to be a writer. Everything is material. You are never not paying attention. There is nothing that is not worth learning and processing into a story. And if somebody feels, getting, feels used, that gets their feelings hurt, too fucking bad. That's the business. <laughs> I think maybe except for the last part, though, but like... That seemed like kind of authentic. Like you would kind of like you. You're soaking up all these different ideas and all these things from like all over the place. Like you kind of use the whole cow in a sense. Yeah, yeah. That's definitely a philosophical blip for me. I probably have more in common with Leela than any other character in the book. Uh, she's somebody who goes from technophobic to technocentric over the course of the novel. I'm somebody who had a similar journey in the course of writing this. Mm-hmm. And she has another section, maybe a little bit later on, about social media. That's also commentary from the author yes darknet you have to obviously build a whole world from scratch with green arrow and even teen titans which you did for dc the world kind of already exists people already have a kind of a door like you just kind of read the passage when you're world building like that are you is there certain details or certain things that you're putting emphasis on so that people know this is what this world is and what this what this world is going to be like yeah so like when you write green arrow when i write teen titans the first thing i do is reread everything you know i go to the library or i i i buy a bunch of books and i just work my way through them and figure out like okay what are some of the best writers and artists the best runs the best sidekicks the best villains the best themes and you want to pay homage to those while also putting your own unique stamp on a series right a novel it's a different sort of story right as you said you're you're operating on your own 40 acres but that's not entirely true you're in conversation with other stories that are somewhat akin to your own. I'm in conversation with Black Mirror. I'm in conversation with Mr. Robot. I'm in conversation with The Matrix and The Exorcist. I'm in conversation with all of these other novels and TV series and movies and, and even comics like Hellblazer. Yeah. And so I am, you know, th- that's sort of like a base stew. And then I'm, I'm giving it my own unique ingredients. And there's a large serving of imagination over the top that really makes it belong to me. So, the, you know, the, the investigative process, the foundational process in a way is very similar. And how do you find characters like Oliver, uh, Oliver Queen and Damien? Because kind of the popular perception is these are the two more arrogant characters in the, in the DC universe. Yeah, yeah. Do you find them arrogant or do you approach them arrogantly or like? Oh, yeah. Damien Wayne is tyrannical. Yeah, as Napoleon com- complex. Uh, Oliver Queen is a loudmouth. One of the things that I've done with both of them, though, is try to really get into the core of their character and break them down and build them back up again. So with Oliver Queen, here he is, this playboy socialite, privileged billionaire, sort of a man-child. He's doing good, but as Black Canary says in the first issue, how can you fight the man if you are the man? So I deconstructed all of that privilege. You know, I... I had his fortune stripped away. I had him on the streets. I had him in a position so that he could better empathize with those he sought to protect. Uh, with Damian Wayne, you know, I, there's been a reckoning all along where like, he recognizes that he is a good guy, bad guy sandwich. And that at times he might be 
drawn as much to you know the darker darker sides of his bloodline as he is to that's what battles back against his want to do good and to be like his father like he's a he's a divided kid and especially as a teenager he doesn't quite know who he is that's one of the reasons that he's so fascinating and why all the teen titans are fascinating to me to write is because they're not fully formed and they're run through with vulnerabilities yeah the even though some of them like um damien who's like a robin uh kid flash who's a flash it seems in a sense that their pre- their their futures are almost prede- predetermined, but they're not. There's still a little bit of flexibility there. There's ways that they can kind of go that Barry Allen and Wally West, yeah. for example, didn't go into, or that some of the other countless other Robins didn't go down that road. So there there's some options there. Yeah. And, you know, I love Superman. I love Wonder Woman. I love Batman. Those are iconic characters. And I guess I think it might be more interesting to write characters like Wally West. It might be more interesting to write characters like Jackson Hyde because there's more elasticity to them. There's more ways things could go wrong. There's only so much you can do with James Bond. Mm-hmm. There's only so much you can do with Clark Kent before you've betrayed the canon. But these kids, right, they're... Some of them could grow up wrong. Some of them could make a critical error, which we all do as teenagers at some point, and uh, other people are going to suffer for it, and maybe they'll get kicked off the team, as which is what happened to Kid Flash, and they'll have to you know, struggle on their own for a while. And kind of grow up, which yeah, is yeah. part of the where they're at. And what about uh, Green Arrow? Because what's interesting with that is right from the get-go, I know you're writing at the tail end of New 52, but with the establishment of uh, DC Rebirth, you purposely reframed Green Arrow as a social justice warrior, which has quite a number of connotations, yeah. negative connotations. Are you kind of playing with that? Like, is there something you're going to try and play with that? Or are you kind of like trying to give them a patron seat uh, so then they have somebody to look up to? Or what was kind of like the purpose? Green Arrow that? is, if you look at the canon, right? Go back to the Neil Adams, Denny O'Neill era. He's a left-wing warrior. He's calling people fat cats and fascists. I wanted to bring that back. Green Arrow is the most political character in the DC universe. And I have a mandate. Every single issue I write has to have a connection to a social justice issue. It has to somehow channel the headlines that are making us anxious right now. So him being a social justice warrior, I don't care what other people think that means. If you just look at the, the term itself... Every every hero is a social justice warrior. Yeah, but him owning that is important because he's you know he, he's claiming it. It's his it's his defining mission. That's fair. You had a tweet recently where I want to switch gears and kind of go a little bit further out. You had a tweet on uh, September twenty seven. You talked about how like you published your first story fifteen years ago in a college lit journal. Yeah, yeah. How's this journey been like? 15 years later, like, you're writing for DC, you're writing James Bond, you have a couple of novels out now. Is this, with the journey, is this what you expected, or is it, there's been surprises or disappointments, or? Well, there's been plenty of disappointments, lots of rejection, nobody, you know, you, you hear on social media about all the good news. But every writer out there, I, I promise, has plenty of bad news that they're hiding. I get rejected every week. I hear a lot of no's. Uh, I've heard no's since the very beginning. And 
it's one of the things that distinguishes writers who make it and writers that don't is there's lots of talented people out there, but it takes grit. Like it, it takes a, a callus the size of a catcher's mitt around your heart to carry on. I wrote four failed novels before publishing one. Every book that I've published, I've rewritten and rewritten and rewritten and thrown out thousands, sometimes thousands of pages. Uh, I don't know how many pitches I sent to DC from 2009 until 2014. I think 47 or so, 48. But 2009 is when I first submitted a pitch. 2014 is when I first published a comic with DC. Wow. And here's the way it works with success. I mean, that first acceptance in that little college journal is like a line of cocaine, right? Yeah. Brains blazing, adrenaline spiking. And in a way, you're always chasing that first line. At first, it's like, I just want to get published in this magazine. And then it's, I just want to publish this book. And then it's just, I just want to get a, get this com, this comic series. And then it's, I just want to make this TV show or this movie. You need more and more lines to get that same high, right? I'm always chasing something. But I'm incredibly grateful every day when I sit down at the keyboard. I love what I do. I'm paying the rent, putting clothes on my kids and food on the table. Playing with my imaginary friends for a living. I'm a lucky dude. That is a pretty lucky dude. As you keep playing with your imaginary friends, what kind of uh, imaginary friends are you hoping to play with? Are you working on more novels, screenplays? Yeah, you know, I, I want to keep doing the Neil Gaiman thing. I want to keep straddling all these different mediums. I want to keep writing comics. I want to keep writing novels. I want to keep writing occasionally for magazines. I'd like to. You know, I've sold several screenplays. Haven't anything made yet. Would love for that to happen. I'm playing around in the podcast universe as well. You'll hear more about that next month. So I always want to be challenging myself. I want new stuff going on because that's what keeps it fresh. In terms of like growing, we were talking about this when we were having nachos. With every novel, are you setting out like a specific goal or something you're trying to achieve? I know you just mentioned like you want to get to that high and those lines and stuff like that. But are you trying to challenge yourself? Or are you yeah, trying yeah. To every like... novel's got a different challenge. Darknet, for instance. So many of my books prior to this have been outdoorsy. This is an urban story set in Portland. Portland's a character in it. Uh, my last two books have been epic, over 600 pages. This book is fast and mean at 250. I knew nothing about technology when I started this. I came out the other end, something of an expert on digital security. So, anyways. Yeah. Yeah, yeah every book's a challenge. Uh, its own unique challenge. All right. Thank you, Ben, for talking to me about trying to figure out ghosts and see ghosts and yeah. the dark net. some nachos. Nachos, yeah. Shooting the shit about some nerdy stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty much what we do, isn't it? <laughs> so, thank you. So, enjoy the rest of the, uh, the Murder Mystery Con. So, yeah, you're in yeah, Toronto yeah, yeah. for uh, ButcherCon, so that should be fun. I'll be nerding up later this evening. All right. Thank you. Yo, I have a surprise for you. First two sweet bits of gratitude. What a cool dude. We recorded this interview at the Sheridan Hotel on Queen Street over nachos. But I hope, I really do hope, one day Ben and I can have nachos at Pacific Junction Hotel Bar, where I typically record my summer layers. And thanks Sharon, a lovely bookseller at Boswell Book Company, Milwaukee. She posted on her Facebook an event she'd done with Ben. I knew Ben's comic book work, but not his novel work. And inspired by Sharon, I picked up the dark net, and here we are. Thanks, Sharon. If you're in Milwaukee, go visit Boswell Book Company. Happy days for true. Now, 
a surprise. You know those Arrowverse crossover episodes? Arrow and Flash, Supergirl, all that good fun? In the spirit of Ben's Green Arrow work, my summer layer is crossing over. What back issue bloodbath? Yo! I co-host a comic book podcast on the Geek Hard Network with Andrew Young. This week's episode focuses on Ben's Green Arrow work following DC's rebirth. If you visit geekhardshow.com, you can click on podcasts or just plop back issue bloodbath into iTunes. Why not even subscribe? Fortune favors the bold. If you want to share your thoughts on this outstanding crossover episode, you can tweet at geekhard and I'm at my pal Sammy. Or you can just let us know how you like your nachos. I'm Team Pulled Pork, represent. Thanks for listening.